Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I invite you to stand as I read these two very familiar verses, I would suppose, for most of us, of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Paul is writing to the saints who are in Rome, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Again, what a privilege and delight it is to preach this particular text in God's providence, bringing us to this text in this moment, the very last Sunday of 2023. The way that my preaching schedule was working, I was fearful that I'd be preaching on verse 18 and discussing the wrath of God on the very last Sunday. But we'll save that maybe for a couple of Sundays into January after you've maybe uh, felt like your resolutions have not come to fruition. But, uh, you know, over the holidays, I read an article that suggested that time, the idea of time, is simply a construct of human thought. That time doesn't actually exist, that there is no such thing as time, that rather time is something we humans have, have made so that we can just demarcate some of the moments of our lives. Well, I give you a moment to try to wrap your head around the idea of saying there is no time because we are creatures of time. Let me tell you something about that article I read. It's utter nonsense. It's an unbiblical notion to say that time does not exist. We find in the Genesis account that God himself is the creator of time. He stepped, as it were, out of eternity to create this, this time bubble in which we find ourselves. And although he himself exists outside of time, above time, he can permeate time and he can leave time, God created time for us. He gave time to his creatures and he gave time according to the word of God specifically for the demarcation of moments so that we can look at times and look at things that have happened in the past and anticipate a future. It's interesting that upon creating the sun and the moon and the stars, all those, those uh, wonderful astronomical uh, uh, mysteries that lay out there. I love just trying to imagine, even trying to get to some of these places. But after creating the sun, moon, and the stars, we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night, a marker of time, and let them be for what? Signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now it seems that the author here is pretty specific that there's a purpose for time. And as God gave his law to Israel, it would include celebration of days, days that would mark off occasions in which they were to celebrate what? The blessings God had given them. So they were markers 
I share all of this because as we come to the end of 2023 and embark now on 2024, I say that it is right and biblical for us to ponder what God has done for us in this previous year, as well as to anticipate what God will do for us in the year to come. But in addition to this, and perhaps more importantly, we do well to consider how we have lived for the Lord in this past year. If you had to give yourself a letter grade for how you have lived for the Lord, what would you assign yourself? And if you're like, well, I'm not sure, well, ask your spouse, ask your parent, ask your children, and find out there's, there's what, how have you lived for the Lord this past year to, to review in our heads the victories that we have, we have secured as well as the defeats that we have endured so that we might better strategize with a view to living a life that is more worthy of the Lord, more worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. And I cannot imagine a better working of God's providence than to bring us to this particular text on this particular day uh, to us as God's particular people to ponder how we have lived and how we will live for the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 were the very verses that absolutely perplexed, and I might even say vexed, a man by the name of Martin Luther. He wrestled with these particular verses over and over for years. We're going to spend just a couple of weeks. But one day he understood by the grace of God what these verses meant. And upon his understanding of these verses, not only did it result in Luther's own conversion, his own salvation, but that would be used to ignite the Protestant Reformation. It would be used to bring myriads and myriads of people to faith in the true gospel of God according to the Bible rather than the wearisome and the burdensome message of the Roman Catholic Church with its works-oriented religion. Beloved, any church and anyone who rejects the plain and simple message of these verses by virtue rejects the biblical presentation of Christianity. These verses stand in total opposition against any religion of works, against any notion of indulgences, against any conception that we will contribute anything to our salvation save for the one thing that we do contribute, the sin that makes it necessary. Because of the profundity of these two particular verses, we're going to take them one at a a time, and our outline is very simple. In verse 16, we find Paul contemplating the gospel. He tells us some things that he's come to understand about the gospel. And then next week, we'll look at Paul's communication of the gospel. What is it that he's actually communicating concerning the gospel. So we're going to focus all of our attention on verse 16, but before we do that, let, I, let me present uh, to you these two verses as a whole. We need to understand how they fit in contextually with what Paul has written and about where he's going to go. 
I'd be failing you as a preacher of the word of God if I did not communicate to you the significance of these two verses as they actually help us communicate and, or excuse me, to interpret the rest of this letter. There have been many commentators that said, if you get these two verses wrong, you'll get the book of Romans wrong. And so it's uh, quite imperative that we understand these verses. In context, recall that Paul had communicated already his desire to visit Rome. And he wanted to visit Rome in order to, to see fruit. Not only the spiritual fruit of believers, but he wanted to see more converts to Christ. We see this in verse 13 where he states that his desire to come to them so that he might have that fruit among them. In verse 14, he tells his readers that he has a debt. He has an obligation, not to God, a debt to unbelievers. He wants to communicate the gospel message to those who had not heard. He wanted to give to them the words of life. And it did not matter whether they were wise men or foolish men. He was the apostle of the Gentiles, and he intended to preach the gospel to them. And then in verse 15, he reiterates again this desire to say that he was eager to proclaim the gospel to those who are in Rome. In other words, the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 15 are the same. Paul desires to evangelize. Paul desires to talk to people about Christ. Paul desires to preach the gospel. They are the same. Now, how does all this relate to verses 16 and 17? Well, I would have you note that Paul links verse 16 to the previous verses by the use of a connective conjunction, that little word for. And Paul is going to use that word for, F-O-R, he's going to use that word four times in order to explain to us, his readers, why he is so eager to preach the gospel. Have you ever wondered why you should be so eager to talk to people about Jesus? Well, let's see what Paul says, why he's so eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome. So let's look at this progression in these verses. Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome, verse 15. The reason he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome is, and here's our first four in verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. But it begs a question. Paul, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? We'll flesh that out in just a moment, but we find the answer in the second uh, four that we find. And it says, For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Then we might ask, why is this so? Why this salvation? Why is it necessary? It leads us to the third use of the word for. For it says there, for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That it is written, the just shall live by faith. And it leads to one more intense question. Why is it? that Paul was so desperate, as it were, to preach the gospel to what he deemed to be a desperate people in need of that gospel, of which Paul is not ashamed, a gospel that is the power of God to, uh, for salvation to all who believe, this gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed. Why is it so important? And it brings us to the fourth four in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Do you not see that we must recognize that people who do not believe in the gospel are facing the wrath of God? What makes Paul so eager to be a gospel proclaimer is that he recognizes it is the only way of salvation. It reveals a righteousness that's foreign to humanity, and it is the only thing that will save and deliver people from the wrath of God. With this progression and the four uses of that word conjunction four, Paul takes us out of his introduction that we've been studying, and he now sets the stage for the first major section of his letter, one that will run from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul has revealed why he is zealous to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He has now given reason after reason after reason as to why he has made those statements. And with this sequence of explanatory conjunctions, we find Paul's line of reasoning and his arguments by which now he will employ in the rest of the letter. With this in mind, let us now turn our attention to verse 16 specifically and note the first two of our major points looking at Paul's contemplation of the gospel of God. Verse 16, let's hear it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. This, of course, is a verse that most anyone in a good Bible-preaching church is quite familiar with. Oftentimes, though, we become so familiar with verses, we fail to drill down and understand them in their context. We, we, we fail to see the, the fullness of what God would have for us. So allow me to do some drilling this morning and have us consider at least at least uh, three or four things that lead, down, lead us to some applications concerning this beloved verse. And we begin with this thought. First, the gospel is not about shame. We live in a culture that is right now, if I might say it this way, hell-bent on shaming people. The gospel is not intended to shame people. Paul begins the use of a very interesting and seemingly negative statement. He says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And then the first thing he contemplates, the first thing he tells us about this is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's an interesting negative. Paul uses a present tense verb for ashamed, meaning that he is not in the habitual disposition of being ashamed of the gospel. Now, the word ashamed carries the idea of being embarrassed by something or some, someone. Uh, let, let us camp here out on this verse, uh, on this word here, ashamed, for a moment. The Greek word literally speaks of carrying shame upon ourselves. It's heaping shame upon ourselves. We might illustrate this with the person who seems to have that little black rain cloud always following him. Maybe you've been that person before, and it's just little black rain cloud, little lightning, and, and it's just there seems to be a burden upon them wherever they go. Shame is a burden. 
a problem that causes us as people to shrink back or to shrink away from others for fear that they might actually see our weaknesses, for fear that they would recognize that we have failed, that we've been exposed. But where did the idea of shame originate? As an emotion, shame originated as a result of Adam's sin way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember the account immediately after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read in Genesis 3 verses 7 and 8, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 it says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. They hid nothing from one another. And they did not even hide themselves in their nakedness from God. But upon sin entering into the world, shame entered the world. And knowing that they have been exposed or potentially exposed because of their sin, now when God shows up, rather than delightfully running to him, they hide themselves for fear of exposure. We do not have time to consider the nature of the shame and why it was, uh, and why it was uh, that uh, they, of course, they had failed to keep God's standard, but it created a burden for them. This is what shame does. It creates a burden. It makes it hard to function properly or, or even at all, depending on its intensity. When you're ashamed about something, it shuts you down. And Paul's coming along in this moment and saying, there's nothing that will shut me down. There's nothing about the gospel that makes me want to shrink back or shrink away from declaring it in its entirety. Shame comes as a result of failing to live or think according to some set standard or even a perceived set of standards. And so while we find ourselves in a shaming culture today, we find ourselves that if we do not accept, it, accept certain lifestyle choices, choices that were regarded as deviant just a generation ago, deviant both culturally, deviant medically, deviantly, deviant psychologically, well now today, if you stand against that, you're called the evil one. You're the one that's canceled. You're the one that's put to shame. You are called intolerant. You are called unloving. And it goes on and on and on because if I can tell you long enough, many times enough, that you're unloving and you're intolerant, well, you might just begin to what? Believe it. And you will be ashamed for believing other than what you've been told to believe. The goal of shame is that you will either conform to a deviant standard or at least shut up and hide yourself so that others can maintain their standard. There were those of Paul's day that considered the message of Paul as deviant. They said that what Paul taught 
was evil. They believed with all their heart that that message needed to be squelched. It was an unwelcomed message, and the reason why it was unwelcomed is that it revealed people to be what they really were, sinners in need of a Savior. For the Jews of Paul's day, they they were very much ashamed of the message that he preached. He proclaimed to them that in order to be saved from God's judgment because of their sins against him, they must put their faith, they must put their trust, they must put their hope in the work, the work of one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not depend upon their own self-righteous acts and works. They were asked to put their faith in a Savior who hung on what the Jews considered to be the most cursed way to die, hung on a tree. And that only by believing that would they ever be delivered from their sins. Such a message was absolutely scandalous in Jewish thinking. It was for them, as Paul would declare in 1 Corinthians 1.23, it was a stumbling block. The Jews stumbled over this. And so they either had to be ashamed of themselves or they had to begin to attack Paul and his message to make Paul ashamed that he as a Jew would ever think such things. But Paul preached it. For the Gentiles of Paul's day, the message of Paul was absurd. It was utter foolishness. They could not begin to imagine that God could or would come to earth as a man. Why would a God subject himself to this? As one preacher has put it, the idea of the incarnation, not to mention the crucifixion, was utter folly to Greek thinking. Those To those rationalists, nothing could be more absurd than the idea of an incarnate God giving himself to be crucified in order to secure salvation, holiness, and eternal life for a fallen world. And so we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Now, I, I have a suspicion that every one of you has run into these kind of people, right? Oh, I would believe, but I stumble over this particular idea. Well, I will never believe because, well, what you're preaching is just, well, it's dumb. That's happened 2,000 years ago. We don't even know if that really happened. They come up with all sorts of ways to make it sound foolish. And so both the Jews and Gentiles of Paul's day sought to undermine, sought to destroy Paul. They ridiculed Paul in many ways as he sought to preach the message of the gospel. We might refer today that their attempt was to gaslight Paul. Just tell him over and over and over and over how wrong he is and maybe he will be quiet. You might have heard of that term gaslighting, speaking that speaks of declaring some untruth so much, some untruth over and over again to the point that the one receiving the message begins to, well, actually believe it, that maybe this is true. Maybe I've missed the boat. I mean, some of you, we've probably been there, all of us, where is what I'm saying about Christ, is this the truth? You know it's the truth, but you keep hearing that it's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's archaic. Why would we continue to preach it? 
But the idea is that if you have enough people telling you that a particular lie is the truth, then even though you know the truth, you might begin to accept the lie instead. To all such pressures, Paul begins his gospel proclamation. He says, let me tell you something about the gospel. Number one, I am not ashamed of the person and the truth and the work that is encapsulated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, in effect, I am not ashamed to stand before a group of people on a college campus if it needs to be, in the middle of the marketplace, and declare that God has become man. And that God did, in fact, take on human flesh, miracle of miracles. Can I explain it? How the infinite God crammed himself into the finite corporal body of flesh? No, I can't. That's why it's a miracle. He is not ashamed to declare that Jesus went to the cross. He's not ashamed to say that Jesus was able to bear the sins of his people. He was, he's not ashamed to say that Jesus provided redemption and reconciliation with God by means of his shed blood. He was not ashamed to say that this one died on the cross, that this one was buried, this one was placed in the grave, and after three days, again, miracle of miracles, this one rose from the dead never to die again. He was not ashamed of declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed to say a man has risen from the dead never to die again. He's not ashamed to declare that because of Christ being raised to life, it all proved that what God had said about him, it all proved what Jesus himself had proclaimed about himself. Paul was not ashamed to proclaim the resurrection that revealed that the only pathway to heaven, the only way by which humanity will ever get to heaven is through him, by him, and for his glory. Paul was willing to stand against the culture. Paul was willing to stand against the false narrative, to stand up and proclaim the truth of what God had declared to be so. We preach Christ crucified because God said Christ would be crucified for our sins. Paul did not shrink away in shame. He did not feel it needed uh, that it would cause him to avoid speaking at all. Paul was eager to preach the gospel. We've read that. Paul had preached the gospel. Paul considered himself cursed if he did not preach the gospel. It always makes me wonder, would you consider yourself cursed by not sharing the gospel? Paul did. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it could also mean that he's using this so-called negative statement of not being ashamed of the gospel as actually an echo of what the Lord Jesus taught in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus said there, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
in this sense, Paul, what terrified Paul more than anything else was not to hold in the highest esteem the wonder of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why didn't Paul, though, begin with something more positive? Couldn't he begin with something a little more positive? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Who cares what you think, Paul? Tell us something substantive. Perhaps he could have said, I'm proud of the gospel. Why Why wouldn't he say that? I'm proud of the gospel. Well, the idea of pride was not necessarily well thought of in Jewish circles. And it was certainly misapplied and misunderstood among the Gentiles. And so it could be that Paul was actually giving to us a a figure of speech as well. A, A figure of speech in which you speak positively of something by speaking negatively of it. Have you ever done that before? Well, I have. For example, a couple of years ago, uh, Joe Watkins and I went to a G3 conference, and Jerry is there as well, and uh, we were introduced to uh, three sisters called the Photo Sisters. That's with an F, F-O-T-O, the Photo Sisters. And they played on stage, and they're a pianist and a violinist and a cellist, and they played It Is Well With My Soul, and they played it so incredibly, I leaned over to Joe and said something along the lines, it would have been better if they could actually play those instruments. It's a negative statement, right? be better if they could actually play it. What was I actually doing? I'm communicating by a negative statement how incredibly good they actually were. And so in like manner, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, there is a sense in which he is stating it negatively in order to emphasize the idea of this. How could I ever be ashamed of the gospel? What could you even offer me to suggest that I would somehow shrink away from the very message that delivered my soul from the depths of my own depravity, from the the destiny of an eternal punishment? How could I be ashamed of such a gospel? A gospel that redeems sinners from their sins, a gospel that makes people right with God, a gospel that gives the hope of eternal life in the presence of God. How could I ever be ashamed of such a glorious truth? And so ultimately, this is Paul's bold way of saying that despite the variety of adversities that he had come to see from unbelieving Jews and pagan Gentiles throughout his preaching And living out the gospel. And regardless of what they thought about it. And regardless of what they thought about him. He was completely confident in the gospel. Beloved that's my prayer for my heart. That's my prayer for our church. To be so completely confident in the gospel. I don't care where I'm at. I don't care who I'm speaking to. Wise or foolish. Rich or poor. I will tell them the only message that matters in this world, the only message that will bring them eternal joy, and that is the gospel. He is confident, as we will come to see, that uh, in this gospel, because he says it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. By making this declaration, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul is setting forth really a defiant response to every negative reaction to the gospel. When somebody says, how can you you believe what you believe? 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I stand opposed to anyone. I am, I am bound by scripture, not by your emotion, not by your logic. I am bound to take every thought captive. I'm to destroy any notion that undermines the very premise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have nothing else. To offer you, I can I can try to skate uh, under the radar for a time and not bother people and all of uh, and all of that. But my goal, my mission, according to Christ, is to make disciples, is to tell people about Jesus. And one of the things that will hinder each and every one of us is when we hold on to some semblance of shame. What will people think about me? If I talk to them about Christ now. What will people think? It usually comes back to us. I sh- we have to get beyond that. Paul's like, I don't care what people think about me. I will not be shamed. I will proclaim the gospel. So he's standing in defiance to every negative reaction to the gospel that had ever been expressed against him and had been expressed against him in every part of the Roman Empire from both Jews and Gentiles everybody was gunning for Paul in John Calvin's words and I'm sorry this is a little longer of a uh, of a quote but you know I couldn't put it in my own words couldn't say it better than what he said so listen to John Calvin concerning this particular statement he said this is an anticipation of an objection For he declares beforehand that he cared not for the taunts of the ungodly. And he thus provides a way for himself by which he proceeds to pronounce a eulogy on the value of the gospel. That it might not appear contemptible to the Romans. He indeed intimates that it was contemptible in the eyes of the world. And he does this by saying that he was not ashamed of it. Even as the others would have been. That's my commentary. And thus he prepares them for bearing the reproaches of the cross of Christ, lest they should esteem the gospel of less value by finding it, ex- finding it exposed to the scoffs and reproaches of the ungodly. And on the other hand, he shows how valuable it was to the faithful. Paul states that he's not ashamed of the gospel because he clearly understood both the truth of the gospel and the God's standards of right and wrong. Paul was more concerned about what God thought about him than what others thought about him. And we can say that. You've heard that from a pulpit before. You've probably told somebody, you should be more concerned about what God thinks about you, not what others think about you. It's a great statement. And yet most of us still live with a greater concern about what others think about us than what God thinks about us. Paul says he's not ashamed to proclaim the gospel of God. And he's implying that he's not ashamed to live out the gospel of God. As we begin 2024, what better commitment than this of Paul to make for each one of us. Lord, enable us to not be ashamed of the gospel. To not take personally what others think of us as we strive to faithfully proclaim and live out gospel truth. This then is Paul's first contemplation of the gospel. Let us note the second one. The gospel is not about shame. The gospel is about the power of God. 
Here Paul is giving us the reason why he's not ashamed. Why wouldn't I be ashamed of the gospel? I got something that's so powerful here. It does something so extraordinary here that why would I be ashamed of it? It's the best thing ever. So how could you be ashamed of it? Well, what actually is it? He says the gospel is the power. It is the divine strength of God encapsulated in the message and the person of the gospel is the power of God. And Paul writes this in a way to denote that the gospel is contained power that belongs to God. When you preach the gospel, when you share the gospel, you, you need to remember this is God's power. He's given me some of his power. He's given me something that he said, as I am faithful to deliver this message, he will use to dramatically transform lives. It is this divine power. Now, many of you are familiar with the Greek word that translates this word power in our text. It is the Greek word dunamos. We get our English word dynamite from this particular Greek word. But we need to note that Paul is not saying that the gospel is explosive dynamite that belongs to God. Why? Well, dynamite had not been invented at the time that Paul used this particular word. So what does Paul mean when he says that the gospel is the power of God? And what it appears is that Paul is communicating that the gospel is the mighty instrument through which the salvific energy of God dramatically operates in order to rescue men and women from their sins. Paul will actually make a very similar statement in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what is it? Same phraseology. It is the power of God. This is salvation. When you're saved, you have experienced the power of God. I love this imagery. I love, I got to back up, sorry. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the old days, I said, I would say, I can't wait to get the VHS tape of that event and watch it. Then we went to DVDs and Blu-rays, and now I'll be able to live stream it somehow. The power that it took to call all things into existence in the space of six days and all very good. Can you get your head wrapped around the power that put the universe together and still sustains it? Our Lord Jesus, it says in Colossians 1, sustains it. That's power. To imagine the power that it took to part the Red Sea so that the Israelites would travel through, not in the mud, but on dry ground. One night, that's power. I can't imagine that. I'm going to put all of that aside. That's little stuff compared to the power that God exerts when he takes a dead sinner and brings him to life. That's the power of God. And even as dynamite has the capacity to radically transform something, right? 
If I put a stick of dynamite here in this pulpit, to the chagrin of Brett, and we light it and we run for our lives, it will radically transform this particular pulpit. I hope you've kept the designs. Okay. Dynamite, though, takes something of order and puts it into disorder. That's easy. It's easy to do. How many of you have a hard time making your room messy? How many of you have a hard time keeping your room clean? Okay. Dynamite takes order and makes chaos. But here the power of the gospel has the ability to radically transform by taking something that's in chaos and making it something whole. Of taking that which is unsaved and making it saved. To take that in the terms of Jesus, to take that and make something be born again. What Paul is saying is so profound because it should cause all of us to cringe at our often lack of willingness to simply share the gospel. What Paul is saying is that the very simple, plain proclamation of the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on our behalf is the sovereign, supernatural means through which God's great omnipotence works in order to bring spiritually dead sinners into new life in his Son. Now, I want to show this to you, and I'm going to show it to you from a passage that you're familiar with, and I am not ashamed to say that the word power is not in this particular text, but I promise you, you will see the power of God that leads to salvation. It's clearly the implied point. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, maybe you've heard these words before. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of, our, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, Paul says, all people are dead. Spiritually dead, living according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. They are sons of disobedience as, as those who indulge the desires of the flesh and the mind. And they are children of God's wrath. We are unable to change ourselves. Without the power to change ourselves, what can be done? So we read on in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. But God. You see power? Oh, I don't see it yet, preacher. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even though there's nothing that we could do, even though that we were helpless and hopeless and we were doomed, God made us alive together with the most blessed son, Jesus Christ. And then he adds this little statement, let me remind you of something, by grace. In grace alone, you've been saved. You see the power of God? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together. The Puritan William Gurnall said of this good news of Christ that it is, quote, the chariot wherein the spirit rides victorious 
victoriously when he makes his entrance into the hearts of men, unquote. This is a grand and glorious truth. The gospel of God is the power of God on display. Each one of you are not just monuments of grace. You're monuments of God's omnipotence if you are saved. If you are not saved, you could be another picture of God's great power at work. Because you can't change yourself. But God can quicken your heart and make you alive if you will believe. The gospel of God is the majestic horse-drawn chariot bringing the king of the universe into the hearts of men and women. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Get your head wrapped around that. The kingdom of God resides in you. Get your head wrapped around that. It is only because of the gospel message. We haven't even really defined the gospel yet. All we're talking about is what Paul is telling us. And so is it any wonder that Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Therefore, how could we ever be ashamed of the gospel? We should proclaim it faithfully and fearlessly as far and as wide as we possibly can. For when we do, our text informs us that it is the power, it is the ability, it is the energy of God to do an incredible work. And let us not fail to note the verb that Paul uses here. It's maybe easy to forget this one. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. It is a present tense verb reminding us of what is continually true of the gospel and its power. In other words, as we begin 2024, as we seek to make our commitments to be better proclaimers of the gospel, we must remember that the gospel is always the power of God to to save sinners. It'll never be about us. It'll never be about what the other person thinks about themselves. It is God's power to save sinners. It will never stop being God's power. It's the only thing that saves sinners. And therefore, why would I not want to proclaim it anywhere and everywhere? Paul's use of the word power would have resonated in the hearts and minds of his readers in Rome. Man, the Romans were about power. Rome was the seat of power. Rome was the strong arm of the entire known world at the time. The Roman people, by their nature, appreciated matters of power and strength. And so when Paul comes along and says to the Roman believers, the gospel is the power of God, we know Paul is speaking To these believers, the Spirit of God is speaking to us of a far greater and a far more glorious power than that of Rome. Paul is not speaking of military power. He's not speaking of horsepower. He's not even speaking of the power of men to command and yet never do what? I mean, I can tell you all day long things that you can do, but I don't have the power to change you. Paul is speaking of a power that belongs to the message of the gospel, declaring that it has the strength to turn dead sinners into living saints, that it has the power to turn radical rebels into reverential, righteous people. It has the power to take those who are lost, hell-bound wretches to become found, heaven-bound worshipers of 
Christ. This message of the person and work of Jesus Christ is truly the power of God. There's nothing grander. And if you forget, why would it seems like there's bigger displays? I can get more excited about a thunderstorm and lightning sometimes than I can the gospel because I fail to recognize the power of being transformed from darkness to light, from death to life. The power of God to convert and conform the sinner. Well, we've seen Paul's contemplation of the gospel as being that which is not, we are not to be ashamed of it. It is the power of God. Let us next consider the gospel results in salvation. Now, I've already been alluding to this because I can't help myself. But it says that the gospel is the power of God. The power of God to what? To save. You could have filled in the blank with a lot. The gospel is the power of God. You could fill in the, the blank. But Paul says it is for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, or perhaps a better translation would be this. The gospel is the power of God resulting in salvation, or unto the goal of salvation. God has a purpose in his people proclaiming the gospel. Do you know the reason why we're called to go and preach the gospel to all creation? There's a twofold purpose. It will either bring people to the point of conversion by which they confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead for their sins. It will bring them to that conversion whereby they receive the truth of the gospel by faith. Or it will bring about condemnation, conversion or condemnation. In that having been told the truth about why Jesus came and they rejected, it is to their own demise, to their condemnation. It is interesting to note that this is the very first time in verse 16 that Paul uses the word salvation in this letter. And I promise you it will not be the last. But the truth is this. What is the gospel about? It's about Jesus Christ who saves. The gospel is about salvation. When you share the gospel, your desire should be, God, may this person come to see the salvation that can be theirs by faith in Christ. I share the gospel with another believer, and my prayer ought to be, I'm so excited about salvation and the gospel. May they delight in it all the more as they are called to recall what they've been saved from. Now, if we were reading this particular letter for the very first time, not knowing where Paul was going, we might pause at this particular statement that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and ask the question, from what does the gospel deliver? Because the word salvation means to deliver or rescue. And the question that should come to your mind is, what do I need to be saved from? Oh, we can fill in the blanks with that. I need to be saved from taxes. I need to be saved from my government, I need to be saved from, you know, uh, wacko thoughts and, and deviant lifestyles. We could fill in the blank with all sorts of things that we need to be saved from. Well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the answer is, as I've already alluded, found in verse 18. All people without distinction, all people in every place need deliverance 
from the wrath of God. Verse 18. The wrath of God that their sins, that their ungodliness, that their unrighteous lives deserve. So yes, we could say rightfully, biblically, the gospel does deliver us from the three dreaded S's of sin, self, and Satan. This is true. But the gospel primarily or ultimately delivers believers from the dreadful penalty and punishment of our sins against God, that penalty and punishment being the eternal suffering of God's judgment in hell. The wrath of God is revealed. We're seeing it in our culture, and people are so blind to the truth that they don't see that the very thing that's going to bring them into a Christless eternity in this very present age is it's being revealed. This is what you need to be saved from. It's only going to get worse. We, when we begin to realize what God has provided us in the gospel as our rescue from his wrath, then we begin to sense just how loving, just how merciful our sinless, uh, our, our sinless uh, Savior is to deliver us from the wrath that we deserve. That Jesus being our substitute who bore that penalty and punishment for us in our place on the cross. How astounding as that's part of this gospel message. Paul will actually expound on this more thoroughly in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 9. Uh, hear what Paul writes here. For while we were still, I want you to note some of these words. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, so now you're helpless and you're ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now having been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from what? The wrath of God through Jesus. We are helpless, we are ungodly, we are sinners, and while in this state we deserve the wrath of God, but the love of God has been demonstrated that Christ died for us so that we might be delivered from the wrath of God. But there's more. The gospel not only delivers us from the penalty and the punishment of sin, which is the e eternal experience of the wrath of God. Paul will later explain all of that. But uh, it also delivers us from the power of sin, presently from the power of sin. In Romans 6, 11, Paul will say, Therefore, reckon yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, and alive to God. You want, you want the best simple prayer to pray when you first wake up in the morning? God, help me recognize that I'm dead to sin and alive to God this day. Whereas before our understanding of the gospel, 
uh, we recognized we were enslaved to sin. Sin is literally our taskmaster. Sin directs our thoughts and behaviors. Now we need not submit to the taskmaster any longer. The taskmaster of sin no longer has authority, no longer has power over us because we've come to trust in the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's freed us from the power, the tyranny of sin, and he empowers us to live for him. Not only does the gospel deliver us from the penalty and punishment of sin, not only does it deliver us from the power and pollution of sin, it will one day and most wondrously and gloriously deliver us from the very presence of sin. Can you? I can't even get my head wrapped around a, 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 no sin. I can't fathom that. A place in which, a world in which there is no sin present. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness, and I think the idea of righteousness alone dwells. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come and remove every trace and stain of sin. Bring to us your full and final salvation. Yet, as you tarry, Lord, empower us to live above the sinful flesh, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And I've been preaching a long time, but let me get to my last point. The gospel is for everyone who believes. The gospel is for everyone who believes. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Beloved, from the human point of view, the power of the gospel resulting in salvation is only for those who believe. The word believes is in the present tense, meaning that they are those who believe and always believe. They believe and continually believe. Here Paul begins to lay out some of the most fundamental doctrinal truths that salvation is received by faith, not as a result of our works, but he also puts a limit on those who participate in this gospel truth. Yes, he says the gospel is for everyone. That is for all peoples without distinction. The gospel is for all who individually trust, as that's what the word believe means here, who trust in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation. We come to recognize that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus made a once-for-all perfect atonement for the sins of his people. And everyone who believes and continues to believe and always believes in him will, and his accomplishment on their behalf will be saved in this life. And they will receive, be received into his glory in, in the life to come. Of, or, um, for Paul, the idea of what it truly means to believe would what we would refer to as biblical faith means so much more than just mental assent. I'm not here. Paul didn't desire for you to say, oh, yeah, uh, I, I know in theory, I know with my head about this person named Jesus. I understand what you're telling me about that. It's not pure mental, simply mere mental assent to the gospel. It's not knowing and agreeing with me that Jesus lived, died, and was buried and rose again on the third day because even the demons believe that. And they tremble, according to James chapter 2, verse 19. The gospel, according to Ephesians 2, 8, is a gift of God. It is a totally undeserved, unshakable trust in the finished work of Christ alone for salvation. 
It is the forsaking of all other confidences. It is the forsaking of trust in yourself, in your works, in your religious upbringings. It is the forsaking of our our baptism or church membership or our so-called righteousness. Anything and everything else in order to rely solely and entirely on what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago in our place. Such a faith depends completely on the one who lived a perfect life, not in order to show off, but in order to put on display the life he desires for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is faith? Now listen to the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Well, verse 16 ends with this statement that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. With this phrase, Paul is communicating at least two things. First, the gospel is for all people everywhere indiscriminately. We don't pick and choose who the gospel is for because the gospel is for everybody. It will accomplish one of two things, conversion or condemnation. And so no one is to be excluded from hearing the message of the gospel. It is to be preached to all peoples and to all nations without distinction. Jesus commands us to go to all the nations and make disciples. Second, when Paul speaks about the gospel going to the Jew first, he is not speaking of the Jews as being somehow better or above the Greeks. Rather, he's speaking historically and chronologically as throughout redemptive history of the Old Testament and the New, the Jews first received God's special revelation before others. They received it in order of time. This is why Paul and Barnabas could say of the Jews of their own day in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, that it was necessary for the word of God that it should be spoken to you, the Jews, first. The final takeaway is that we are to preach the gospel to all creation. Why? Because God has encapsulated in the message of, his, uh, of the gospel his power to redeem people from their sins. We need to rejoice in that. It is within the gospel message that the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us is made known. Therefore, we ought to be, as Paul was, eager to preach the gospel. I have to tell you I'm not eager to preach the gospel in Rome, although if you send me there, I'll do it. But we should be eager to preach the gospel in Rogers, Bentonville, northwest Arkansas, eastern Oklahoma, Southwest Missouri, wherever our little feet take us. Do you have that eagerness? Do you have that desire? What a glorious calling. And that should be our desire as we come to this new year. And let me make this one last application that proclaiming the gospel is not just to be with our words, but our lives need to match as well. There are many who want to try to proclaim the gospel only uh, with words, and yet the gospel needs to be communicated with how we live. Words without any resulting lifestyle change is meaningless. So let us pray that we not only proclaim the gospel, but that we also live out its truths. There is no reason to learn gospel truth if we have no desire to apply that truth to our hearts and minds 
seeking to live them out daily and then defend them in the public square as we are given opportunity all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of this one particular verse that speaks to us of the most glorious good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we delight in the gospel. May we delve into the gospel to know it better. May we recognize that it is the power of God resulting in salvation to all who believe. So may we be a people who believe it, who live it, and proclaim it. We ask these things in Jesus' name.